I were recording, uh, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Kevin and I are going to do part two or the next part of our Road to Serfdom uh, series here. Kevin, why don't you give people a brief recap on, on what we did last time? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so episode... Out. Episode one, we just covered the introductory material. Now, that normally doesn't sound like a lot, but since this book has been released and re-released and covered by so many different people, there was like 10 introductions, five forwards, and 18 prefaces. So it's like so much different material there. Yeah, it's like like a a third of the book was literally just this material. So um, what we covered last time was just the introductions, forwards, prefaces for the 44, 56, 76, 94, and 2007 releases of the book. And some of these releases included the new American paperback edition of the book, which is important. I'll, I'll get to it in a little bit. But outside of Hayek and others introducing the material of the book, they also talked about how it was received in Europe compared to America. And this distinction is important because Uh, the Europeans already had the experience with socialism and collectivism that made the material in the original version fairly obvious and believable. Whereas in America, they lacked that experience with socialism and collectivism in practice, which made the book much more profound and even led to a major pushback from mostly, I mean, by mostly, I mean, almost exclusively academics who were in favor of those things. Uh, academics. Oh, for sure. But there is one uh, other very important detail that we need to highlight from the outset, and I think we might need to highlight this basically at the beginning of every single episode, and that is the understanding of liberalism in the European sense compared to the sense in the United States, because they mean two completely different things, where liberalism in the original European sense uh, is to live largely free of government coercion or control. I mean, that you, you want to live free um, of some third party trying to inter- interfere in your life. Uh, but liberal, liberalism in America means almost the exact opposite of its original meaning in that liberal has come to mean the advocacy of almost every kind of government control, completely, yeah. completely the opposite. And the reason for this is actually something we we're going to get into today. So um, really, that brings us up to now. And yeah, if, you haven't, uh, if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's a great introduction to this material, a little bit on Hayek's history as well. Um, and, and also kind of goes into our personal story as to why, you know, what led us to this book and, and why we wanted to read it originally. Yep. Um, no, that's, that's a great, that's a great introduction there, Kevin. Uh, yeah, people need to understand that when we are quoting Hayek here and when we're, um, discussing it, like they really need to kind of train their brain to hear liberal and liberalism and think basically the same way they would, uh, like about in the modern context, like conservative or libertarian, um, kind of thing that it's that modern in America, liberal is like synonymous with leftist or progressive and it's the exact opposite. So whenever we're making defenses of liberalism, making defenses of um, what the liberal order is. And when Hayek is making, he draws a lot of, um, he will compare and contrast liberalism with socialism or liberalism with fascism or liberal or liberalism. He'll conflate sometimes like liberalism and democracy in some ways. Um, And so think about it as, Liberalism is freedom, like you would maybe think libertarian or, or um, conservative, not this leftist garbage that we see today. Um, yeah. And so I, I like that important little little detail there because, you know, one of the things I, I hate and just as uh, Hayek projected his scorn as to why he, he does not understand why American liberals allowed the word to be used like this because it took away all the power and now they're, they're defined as conservatives, which means, again, something completely different in Europe. Um, but now... You know, the other side of that coin is the the way we use it. You know, a lot of conservatives 
use it as a pejorative or they use the word yep. like libtard and that also hurts them because it's like what do you mean you hate people who love liberty that's that's against yep. your thing it's like why are you doing it? so it just creates all this stupid confusion that is completely unnecessary and uh so it's really really good that we understand you know the base exactly what we're talking about here because we use liberalism 100 times and hayek also made it a point to to make this distinction so it's good that we make it at the beginning yep and there's going to be other words we're going to have to do that with, um, like individualism and I think democracy probably in some cases. But I mean, that, it's important to note that that word, that word game um, is intentional on the part of those who are using it in a different way and trying to hijack something and infiltrate it and exploit um, that existing system. And we'll get into that um, at the beginning of chapter two. But that, that word game is, is very much intentional on the part of those doing it. Uh, so that brings us up to speed. So today we're going to be going over chapter one and chapter two of The Road to Serfdom. So again, for those of you who uh, didn't watch the first video, you should. We're going to include a, uh, a, a link to a PDF for free where you can follow along um, with us if you'd like uh, on, you know, on your computer. And then as Kevin mentioned in the last video, it's also free for download on Audible. Um, so just a reminder um, for you folks that that is available and you should totally utilize it. All right, Kevin. Um, so we're starting out with chapter one, the abandoned road. Um, and so one of the things that like Hayek seems to go over here and, and what I like about the way he writes, um, tell me what you think about this, is that it seems like he's very meticulously building a case. Um, and he, there's the road to serfdom and before he um, goes into what that road is, he first begins with this, what he calls the abandoned road, and which really is the road that brought society so much freedom and prosperity in the first place. And, you know, one of the themes of the first chapter of the book is he's saying, look at the system that we used to build up society from nothing um, from people just in squalor and in rigid, you know, class hierarchies to where we have freedom and advances in science and in medicine and upward mobility, you know, for some for more people than others, but generally like things have gotten better as we have utilized this system of freedom as opposed to coercion. And so he does a good job, I think, in this first chapter kind of highlighting, you know, when he says the abandoned road, he's like, here's the road that brought us here. And then there are all these people now who think that we can, instead of trying to stay on it and even, you know, not saying it's perfect, but to even just let's, how can we maintain or tweak it a little bit, you know, improve it, but who are like, let's literally destroy the whole thing and try some new thing and just hope that it actually gets better results. Um, and so it seems like he does a really good job of laying out this case of history in really general terms, um, which we'll get to here in a minute uh, before getting into the specifics of, okay, but this is what you're rejecting in favor of this, this new thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what I like and what I think I might have mentioned in the first episode is, you know, I'm a big fan of Thomas Sowell. Uh, I like him because he hits you over the head with empirical evidence. That's why we say to any leftist, um, you know, I see it's like, all right, you read all these other books, um, but let's, let's put those books aside and read a book that kind of goes against your narrative and you would probably get a concussion with how hard he's going to hit you over the head with all this empirical evidence. But what I love about Hayek is Hayek is like the logic center of Thomas Sowell's brain. He hits you over the head with this just logical comparisons and with a lot of historical facts and findings that show the progression of these ideas um, through just a, a logical standpoint. So he truly hits you over the head with how hard he's going to be able to lay out 
what these people thought at this time and how they progressed from there and also tracking those trends with other countries like England and America. And that's why it was so profound to, to people in both of those countries. Yeah. And one of the ways that he does that, and I totally agree. And one of the ways he does that, like he, he incorporates logic, I think with, you know, maybe it's something with a European style or sensibility, but he does a good job of basically hitting you with brutal um, realities here and criticism uh, without it, like necessarily coming across as like, you could miss it, I guess, is my point. Um, and like, just how he opens the, the first chapter of, you know, how he's basically saying that, uh, well, you have the quote right here, you know, we are ready to accept almost any explanation of the present crisis of our civilization, except one, that the present state of the world may be the result of genuine error on our part, and that the pursuit of some of our most cherished ideals has apparently produced results utterly different from those we expected. And the point is, is that he opens it by pointing out that there are all these intellectuals advocating for this stuff, and we see this today, but where they have, they're so convinced of the rightness of their goals, they're so convinced of the purity of their intentions that they don't have the self-awareness to stop and, and ask, okay, are the methods I'm using to go about achieving these goals actually creating the desired result? I mean, that's a Thomas Sowell thing talking about feedback mechanisms. And Hayek is saying, you want to blame all of these things, the ignorance of our elders, you want to blame evil systems, you want to blame capitalism, you want to blame these bad countries or whatever, um, and you'll blame anyone except for the, you know, yourself or the ideas them themselves because you lack the self-awareness to ask if maybe you made a mistake um, and that, you know, again, to that quote where he says, the pursuit of our, own, our most cherished ideals might have created the exact opposite. But those people, I mean, we see this with, you know, things like war on poverty or welfare programs or all these other things. It's supposed to bring people out of poverty, but it keeps them in poverty. A lot of things like no child left behind ends up leaving every child behind. You know, there are these things that are, as Sol would say, um, to quote him again, it's like they're being judged by the name, like the name of it. Like it's, the name is, is supposed to, it has nothing to do with what it's doing. Like diversity training doesn't mean that you actually train someone in diversity, you know? And so yeah, the, Patri saying, the Patriot Act didn't create patriots. That is correct. Um, and exactly. Yeah. And so he's saying like at the start of this and what I like about this, you know, before we move on is it seems like he's making the case that, you know, things we've talked about before is that there is a pride. There's a pride in a lot of the people who are so convinced by their intentions that prevents them from stopping to look at the actual outcomes and so everything he's about to get into, he, he's saying, you guys need to take a step back from your own pride and your own, you know, certitude of your moral superiority and look at what your ideas actually create. Um, and before we do that, let's look at, let's look at the things you're opposed to and see what that created. And that was that kind of stumbling upon freedom that he, that he moves into after that part. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this, idea that uh, it was just it was some other force outside of you know our control that screwed this whole thing up so we can just retry it again that lends itself to the next excuse which is this thing that i like hasn't really been tried and that's why it's been a disaster yep. throughout history he starts out this chapter with a quote from fdr uh quoting about the same thing where um you know he's just saying you can really claim that you can do anything just by saying it hasn't been tried and all that really means is when someone says socialism can work this hasn't been tried just means that i haven't tried it yet yep. and you believe that you can do it right and there's an excellent 
60 second clip from from Jordan Peterson, who's giving uh, one of the the his talks um, before he I think he was before he got super famous, but it was just a lecture, um, you know, explaining to the kids in, in the hall that, you know, everyone says that I could have done it better if it was just me. If I had all that control, I could have done it better. And that is an insane way to think because the people yep. who are actually pure of heart who would have done it better. Those are the first people to get shot in the back. Yep. And it's, it's with your control saying, oh, man, how do I correct this injustice? You will do some really, really bad things to correct injustices that you believe are truly horrible. And then you're going to find yourself being the monster and being capable of all these awful things once you have that power and the ability to, to control everyone else's life. Yep. And again, if you are the type of person who really would, wouldn't do that, then you'd be dead. Because yep. the system you advocated for would necessitate your destruction. Well, um, it also incentivize bad actors to shoot you in the back. <laughs> I mean, exactly. We'll, we'll exactly. get into what how liberalism kind of lent lent itself to its own destruction. We'll get to that in a little bit, but it's it's kind of the same theory where um, you know if you're going to allow all these ideas to flourish, um, some bad ideas are going to come in and then it can destroy you and your ideas. Yeah, and and one of the ways that I mean he highlights it here is is like you said, is that people with these with these good intentions, but also the the pride and the lack of self awareness to look at the outcomes of their intentions. Um, they'll say instead that this didn't happen because of some nefarious force. Um, and the way that you conquer a nefarious force is through the request of power. And so it's give us power so we can accomplish X. Okay. X isn't being accomplished. So it's either, we don't have enough power. We don't have enough money, you know, this government program, you know, whatever, we need more funding. Um, or these folks are trying to stop it. So give us more power so we can oppose these forces and then we can accomplish x oh well x hasn't gotten there and then you just find a new thing and you rinse and repeat until but all of it is the pursuit of power which we'll get to again he brings up later but again we see this today where it's like uh, okay vote us in oh but we need to get rid of the filibuster or we need to pack the supreme court we have we need more power we need to tip the odds more in our favor um so we can truly get these things accomplished and then it's just, it's all just that pursuit of more and more consolidation of power. And you and you see this a lot with stuff that is much smaller in scope as well. So he talks about in the introduction that this book is not just to to say that socialism is bad because then all the people who advocate for these socialist policies is going to say, well, this isn't socialism. This is just a social program by itself. Well, you see, uh, you know, public school saying we're oh, we're just always underfunded. That's like the only excuse yep. a public education has is we're underfunded. And it's like, no, you need to expand this more to anything that takes freedom away from you and allows the state more coercion, even if it's not at a mass scale, it's just in this one industry or it eliminates competition and incentivizes, it goes away from individualism and moves toward collectivism, even in that one small industry, be aware of it because this is what's going to happen. They're always going to ask for more power. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think why Hayek is, is warning uh, against us here is he gets to where he's like, what we're seeing now is I, he alludes to it here where it's like it, it's it's looking like the allies are going to win the war and he's saying the people advocating for this stuff now are making the mistake of thinking that these uh, like the ways in which this didn't work or it went wrong in these other countries like italy germany whatever um well that's a german thing or that's an italian thing and Hayek is saying, no, 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 this is just an idea thing. And so you can't make the mistake of thinking that this is like the like ways in which these ideas go off the rails are confined to national borders. They're not. It's just this is what happens when you implement these things, um, period. And so he was seeing a lot of people deflect to 
you know, that's, that's a, this is, that's just a Germany thing. And we see that today kind of in the opposite where it's like, no, 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 we don't mean communist socialism. We mean like Sweden, you know, or something like that. We mean like a Nordic model of socialism. And it's like a, a deflection of to, well, no, 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 this is where it actually works or whatever. And it's not, it's not this. And it's like, no, 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 this is what these ideas mean. And of course, in the places they point to, it's not actually socialism. Um, and they will say as much, but, but anyway, but it's a similar kind of thing as, as, as today. Um, so let's, do you want to get into the part where he kind of talks, uh, before we get into, well, there's this one part here, um, that I think is an important note and something we'll come back to, especially at the end as we talk about criticisms, um, when he talks about just the, the, how changes happen incrementally, um, and how, like, that his point there at the end is that this this change these gradual changes um moving away from individualism towards socialism and stuff uh it's not just a change in policy but how you and again this is where he starts to build the argument of the road that they abandoned um before that he says look whenever you change these policies you change the culture of a society whenever you start to implement these changes and add more coercion add more collectivist stuff you start to change the culture of a society and you incrementally, by doing that, you don't just change, by changing the culture, you change the trajectory of that society. And so again, that's where if we're looking at roads, he's like, we're at a fork in the road, basically. Um, in, in some ways, there's a road that's brought us here. Um, and so, and now by changing these, the culture and trying to advocate for these policies, you're taking us off the road that got us here and onto a road that leads somewhere else and that you might not see it right now uh, but these gradual changes will change the culture which changes where we're, where we're heading um, as a society um, does that make sense yeah I mean um, it's there's a really, really quote good quote from the, the introduction that um, or it wasn't even by him I think it was by uh, Hume um, that you know you don't lose you don't lose a uh, uh, all liberty and all freedom all at once. Like it, yep. it never just happens in a snapshot. And that's what a lot of people who think like, oh, that can never be us. That's a, it's a German thing. It's an Italian thing. You know, that is them just kind of pushing off that responsibility and saying, well, you know, I, we're, we're going to, you know, liberty, liberalism is already here. You know, it's, it's ingrained in our society. Now we don't have to worry about it going away. And yep. uh, you'll quickly see that, you know, people are going to really reverse track and scrap everything because something is not moving fast enough. Normally is the excuse. Yep. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good point that this stuff happens a little bit at a time. And then once that, that, uh, that dam breaks, then it goes to, to, uh, in a bad direction really, really fast as you can yep. see what happened in Europe. Do you want to get into the, to the words part? Uh, cause there's that funny part. Like, again, as we mentioned earlier, guys, um, there is this word play, you know, that we see where liberalism, um, is, is hijacked um, by, well, we'll get into that later, but liberalism meant this one thing. Mm -hmm. And then Hayek has this quote about freedom and liberty, and he also includes the word tolerance in there. And it's pretty funny how even like if you were to, <laughs> if you look at the, if you were to read that today, he would go, oh yeah, that, that here's one of the yeah. things that actually yeah. doesn't apply today. <laughs> one of the thoughts. Yeah. So a good uh, a quote we pulled that, yeah, it did make me laugh. I even called uh, uh, Truman after it. It's like, oh man, if he even knew how how wrong in this little aspect he would be, but but he hit it on the rest of it. But quote is, uh, quote, freedom and liberty are now words so worn with use and abuse that one must hesitate to employ them to express the ideals for which they stood during that period. Tolerance is perhaps the only word which preserves full meaning 
of the principle which during the whole of this period was in the ascendant and which only in recent times has again been in decline to disappear completely with the rise of the totalitarian state. So the implication here is totalitarianism rise because now all of a sudden this tolerance idea that was kind of growing and cultivating and, and to its ascent, ascendant, um, it, it kind of died because in, in place of it moved totalitarian, totalitarianism. Now, the funny thing is today, and you put a little note down here, uh, tolerance, LOL, I thought was hilarious. It's like he thought, you know, tolerance was this thing that was going to save them if they maintained, you know, the definition and kept using it. Um, you know, totalitarianism wasn't come. Now, if he'd have, you know, came to 2021, I think he quickly realized that tolerance is another one of these words, just like freedom and liberty that's been completely hijacked to mean something uh, completely different. It's tolerance to tolerate ideas as long as they agree with your narrative. If they're not in your yeah. narrative, then they must not be tolerated. Exactly. It's 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 the tolerance of tolerance is intolerance. Um, tolerate everything. It, it means agreement. But it, but really, that illustrates his point, mm -hmm. right? Is that freedom and liberty? Even you know, eighty years ago, freedom and liberty are words that have been hijacked. Liberalism, um, all of these things. Later on, we'll see words like equality and justice. Um, get hijacked and he's like well but tolerance is safe and now we fast forward and that that incremental shift that he's talking about um has taken place and tolerance has also been um abandoned i, I think it'd be interesting you know as an aside i just had this thought to make like a some type of a, appendix uh, just a list of here's all the words that now mean literally the exact opposite of what they meant you well, know 20 years you ago. read you read 1984 he did put an appendix in there that oh, the had like speak, an alternative yeah. yeah that basically had yeah. its own def or dictionary in there and yep. uh, and so that was extremely thorough i can only imagine the the painstaking time he took um also yeah. by the way like we mentioned in the last one that uh, orwell took a little bit from hayek here um when when writing uh especially 1984 which came out five years after this was published Yep. Um, so, uh, and mean, animal yeah, farm was great. like, like the next year animal farm was the year yeah. after this was published. I think animal, animal farm was 45, um, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so yeah, so the, the next part of the chapter, uh, I think Hayek does this thing that I think is really, really good. And this is something that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, um, which is where he lays the foundation of how did we build such a prosperous society? Um, and he, he goes into, and this is this why this chapter is called the abandoned road, right? Um, and so he's talking about here's the road that we just stumbled upon, really, in the beginning that led us to make such remarkable advancements over the last, you know, let's say 100 to 200 years. And we're now going to abandon this, I guess, in favor of some, you know, utopian belief that we can do it differently and somehow be better but he does a good job of laying out exactly what the formula is that got them there and he begins by talking about the how men's ability to grow and prosper that they noticed in history um, was related to the commerce systems and that basically any place and i think he, he tracks us back to to italy there's another book called um oh my gosh oh it's gonna drive me crazy i'll think of it later that that talks about this also that um tracks this stuff and, go, and goes back to Italy um, and Fl I think maybe Florence. Uh, but basically, whenever they first started experimenting with what is based in a lot of ways laissez-faire, where men had the freedom to do things, to set up business and trade with each other without, you know, Hayek calls it despotic political power, but basically just government meddling intervention, you know, freedom of commerce spread and blossomed. And with that, there was wealth that was created. And so he's saying that 
the way he puts it is, quote, the realization that spontaneous and uncontrolled efforts of individuals were capable of producing a complex order of economic activities could come only after this development had made some progress. And I put, you know, quote, or translation, freedom creates prosperity. And the example, you know, I gave you before we started was, you know, it, it's kind of like whenever you're in a relationship and you're just figuring out what are the things the other person likes, doesn't like, you know, what works, what pisses them off. You know, you don't necessarily have the realization of those patterns right away, but eventually you go, oh, aha, like my wife really likes it when I do this or really hates it whenever I, I do this. And so I'm going to do more of those things. And so he's saying, I, for whatever reason, you know, luck, happenstance, there were these places where people did have some freedom to engage in commerce and pursue their own desires as they wanted and and wealth was created and and so once it had been going on for a while then we we'll to look back and, and observe it and go oh we should do more of that uh, we should do more of that but really i mean it, it almost seems like he's saying we kind of happened upon this thing yeah and the the best way i mean this this is life right i always make the joke or there was a stand-up comedian who made the really good joke it's like you're a little kid and you always look up to your parents and they always know what to do every adult knows what to do and then you grow up and you realize no one knows what they're doing this exactly. kind of guess and check game that you have to play but the 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 useful part of a guess and check game is when you take data and you analyze data and say okay we did this thing we found ourselves to be more prosperous here or free trade was much more wide open now everyone's ship rose Right. Yep. And that's, I mean, Hayek is an economist. There's no, obviously he, he would think this way. And it's people ignoring those trends or saying those trends aren't fast enough, or we're going to compare those trends and the standards back, you know, a hundred years ago to our standards today. And how awful was it back then? So we got to scrap everything. We'll get to a quote about that later. Um, but, you know, you have to analyze data and understand what direction we're moving. And when you see yourself trending in the right direction, don't scrap everything, right? There are yep. tweaks and changes you can make, but if you're heading down the right path, the right road, the worst thing you can do is completely abandon it, right? You maybe yep. make a little bit of changes, make some deviations, clean up the road, but you, if you just go, you know, go off on a different path or you just go off, off-roading effectively is what I think a lot of people are trying to do. You know, that's when you get into a mess. You don't, don't go off-roading in your Prius. I've tried it. It never works. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you got rid of that Prius though. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and, and he also talks about how it leads to explosion of growth in science. It's funny, he talks about like little mechanical gadgets and toys that were created. Um, and one of the thoughts I had is like, just contrast these things, right? Think about like the dark ages when freedom was stifled, like there wasn't any growth and the Renaissance came after that when growth was allowed, when there was more freedom. And he makes the comparison that Nazism was like an anti-Renaissance, you know, it was anti-freedom, it was anti-growth. Um, it was anti-liberty and, you know, a, a thought that I, or he said that freedom, you know, allows those who are inclined and have the ability to do so, to take risks, um, in pursuit of whatever it is they think might work. And, you know, and the, the thought I had is like the airplane was invented by bicycle makers, you know, the Wright brothers owned a bicycle shop. And so like, that's an example of how you give people freedom to one, you can go and become a bicycle maker. You can have a bicycle shop if you want. And then, you know, no one's getting in your way. You want to try to build an airplane, go for it, you know, but that's, that's what freedom creates is things like that and innovation. Whereas, you know, the opposite of it stifles innovation and stifles. But um, also, it also uses incentives as compared to coercion. There's a mm, big difference yep. between those two. And you can incentivize people to do, to, to make progress and make their own lives better. That's a lot better than coercing them 
to try to make everyone's life better or whatever specified group at that time where, where you have to plan it. You have to pick and choose what groups you want to say, all right, time to make their lives better, but it's going to be at the expense of someone else. Yep. Um, so how do you care if I read through? So sure. for, for people listening or, or watching, so there's like a, the next section is, is, has some big uh, long quotes that we're going to kind of unpack, but it's important because it establishes a couple things. One is the necessity of the connection um, between uh, what made society work, what works, um, and our understanding of those things. It, you, you have to have both. It's not that you, you can't just have things that, that work. Um, you know, you have to also understand how they work so you can replicate them and you can avoid doing different things, right? Uh, so you can avoid doing different things. That's the scientific method is you catalog the things that work, you try them, you repeat them, and you try to lean into those things. And the opposite of that is you're, you are avoiding doing the things that don't work and that haven't worked. So you have to be connected intellectually, consciously to the process that, that, that led you there, the process of success. And so he's documenting the breakdown of the process and a societal understanding and respect for that process and the consequences of abandoning that. Um, and, and so Kevin, how about I, I read some of this stuff and then yeah. I'll, I'll stop and then you can just kind of unpack, uh, sure. unpack it. Does that sound good? Um, so, so here's the beginning. So he says, as is so often true, the nature of our civilization has been seen more clearly by its enemies than by most of its friends. The perennial Western malady, the revolt of the individual against the species, as a 19th century totalitarian, uh, Auguste Comte, Comte, I don't know, has described it, was indeed the force which built our civilization. What the 19th century added to the individualism of the preceding period was merely to make all classes conscious of freedom, to develop systematically and continuously what had grown in a haphazard and patchy manner and to spread it through Europe and Holland and most of the European continent. The result of this growth surpassed all expectations. Wherever the barriers to free exercise of human ingenuity were removed, many became rapidly able to satisfy ever-widening ranges of desire. And while the rising standards soon led to the discovery of very dark spots in society, spots which men were no longer willing to tolerate, there was probably no class that did not substantially benefit from the general advance. We cannot do justice to this astonishing growth if we measure it by our present standards, which themselves result from this growth and now make many defects obvious. To appreciate what it meant to those who took part in it, we must measure it by the hopes and wishes men held when it began. And there can be no doubt that its success surpassed man's wildest dreams, that by the beginning of the 20th century, the working man in the Western world had reached a degree of material comfort, security, and personal independence, which a hundred years before had seemed scarcely possible. And this is the last part here, and then we'll, we'll unpack. What in the future will probably appear most significant and far-reaching effect of this success is the new sense of power over their own fate, the belief in the unbound possibilities of improving their own lot, which the success already achieved, created among men. With the success grew ambition, and man had every right to be ambitious. What had been an inspiring promise seemed no longer enough, the rate of progress far too slow, 
and the principles which had made this progress possible in the past came to be regarded more as obstacles to speedier progress, impatiently to be brushed away than as the conditions for the pre preservation and development of what had already been achieved. Yeah, so there's a, a whole bunch there, but I like in the first paragraph, you know, something you talked about before that you can't really, it's hard to assess the situation while being in it, but from the outside of it, you can see it a bit better. So I think you brought up a really good one before we, we started this uh, recording, you know, how China knows us, how China knows how to manipulate our markets because they're standing from the outside and they don't really, they, they don't really engage in any sort of free markets or, or they do, you know, as one solid nation doing it. Um, but they, they definitely don't play with the same rules we do. That way they can kind of see from the outside and see how we work in, inside of our markets, our incentives, and they're able to manipulate it there. And they're, they're very effective in doing that. But I also think a, a good example of this, you know, I've been reading um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and, and he even talks about how bad, truly bad people are bad because they don't understand what bad mm -hmm. is. Good people understand that they're doing bad because they can recognize it and compare it to the good things they're doing. And they can say, oh, this is bad. I can tell that I did something here. So it's something that you can kind of uh, see yourself when you're moving in that direction. Um, and then the, the uh, next paragraph, uh, I mean, I really, really like this one because and it's something I also ha had highlighted as well. Um, is, is just comparing yourself with different standards, yep. especially yourself compared to a hundred years ago. So there's definitely two directions you can go. You can say, you know, oh, my, my, you know, situation now is not great. You know, I don't own my own property. You know, I'm not doing very good in my career, but if you compare your status to where you are today, today to a hundred years ago, and you'd put your, yourself back hundred years, years ago and you look at yourself it's like, man, you're living like a king. This is crazy how far we've progressed. It's, it's amazing. Yep. But you also look in the other direction where we say, oh man, those people a hundred years ago, you know, they, they believed in some great things, but they held slaves, like awful people. So we project our standards onto them a long time ago. And we say, since they were awful people, we're going to scrap everything they believed in everything they do. And what you're doing is you're knocking out the building blocks of liberalism. And you're saying, all right, out with those because bad people believed in those. And now you have nothing. Your principles don't stand on anything and that's how they fall down so easily. So I, that's the reason I, I really uh, enjoyed that quote. And then the, the um, sorry, I'm trying to back these all at the same time. No, no, you're good. Uh, but, Go for it. So yeah, we, we, we see the progress of liberalism, liberalism, the trend toward more freedom, more prosperity. But once we get all this prosperity and all this, uh, all these fun toys and everything and all these new freedoms. When we see people that don't have these freedoms, we get super disgusted. And we're like, what's happening right now is going way too slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe we're trending in the right direction, but since it's going too slow, you know, maybe it's time to scrap this and doing something that can, can involve a more speedier pro process. Like he, he quotes here. Um, and you know, that is when you get yourself into trouble. That is when you say, all right, trending, good, not trending fast enough, scrap that, give us more power so we can do, do this in a day, right? And that yep. is when you gave up the power, maybe that good thing might've happened, but now at what expense did that good thing happen rather exactly. than happening more organically with people in free trade? Well, and, and one of the things that he says there, you know, that, that you hit on that I like um, before that, as he says, we cannot, again, we cannot do justice to this astonishing growth if we measure it by our present standards, which themselves result from this growth and now make many defects obvious. And so the irony is our amazing standards of living is what makes the defects so glaring because most people are so far removed from abject poverty, from absolute zero, 
that it makes defects obvious because we don't understand that the, the way we even notice it is because there's something to contrast it against. Mm. When you're a peasant in 1300, you don't look around going, you know, God, this is, the, you know, the worst, you know, look at Jim over there up the street. He's got it way better than me. Or these people over here have it way worse. It's like, no, everyone's poor. Everyone's destitute. Everyone is in a hellish existence that they will not escape and they will die probably cold and alone and hungry. And that's, that's what everyone's in. And so the point is, is that those defects that people are impatient to try and address, the reason we even understand their existence is because of the progress we've made and the system that they're criticizing that will address those defects, maybe not as fast as they'd like, but we'll do it, is the system that allowed them to even notice it in the first place. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a completely ironic um, and again goes back to where he's saying you need to have some humility and self-awareness here. Um, and, and I like that he said that people had every right to be ambitious. Um, and, and again, that's it. He's saying, we found out that the system worked, so we wanted it to keep working, but we got so far removed, um, from, from what it was doing, from what was necessary for it, that we became preoccupied with things that would, that would probably destroy it. And I love this last quote here again, like so many of these are just things that I just like want to have like on my wall, you know, or, or like pin tweet or something, but what had been an inspiring promise no longer seemed enough. The rate of progress far too slow. And then this is it right here. The principles which had made this progress possible in the past came to be regarded more as obstacles to speedier progress, impatient, impatiently to be brushed away than as the conditions for the preservation and development of what had already been achieved. Um, and, and we see that, you know, everything about his making observations about the way this gradually erodes society, gradually changes culture, gradually gets people to give up their freedoms and liberty and move more from, from an individual to a, a collective thing. We're seeing that there are all these things that even in Hayek's day, people were saying that was fine. Then, you know, we don't need that now. You know, there's a medium article that I still can't bring myself to close the tab because it reminds me of, of the, what we're up against. And, it, and it's called, we need to abandon our, our childish obsession with the constitution. And it's like, we just need to get literally get rid of the constitution. And it's just this naive thing where it's like the things that the principles that created, you know, the most prosperous freest society in the world, in the history of the world. Well, those aren't necessary to maintain it. You know, we don't need that to maintain the freedom we have, you know, of, I can turn the lights on, you know, and I can open the faucet and clean water comes out. We don't need those those things. Um, and it's so naive and it's so naive. Um, and then, so I'm going to, can we do the same thing? I'll read this next part where he talks sure. about it being penetrated and, and just, um, yeah. So, uh, he's, he talks about basically people start to criticize liberalism. Again, liberalism is like it's freedom. Think Liberty. Um, don't think like crazy, like AOC stuff. Um, <laughs> liberalism was further weakened by the inevitably slow progress of a policy which aimed at gradual improvement of the institutional framework of a free society. This progress depended on the growth of our understanding of the social forces and conditions most favorable to their working in a desirable manner. Since the task was to assist and where necessary to supplement their operation, the first requisite was to understand them. The attitude of the liberal towards society is that like a gardener who tends a plant and in order to create the conditions most favorable for its growth, must know as much as possible about its structure and the way it functions 
Um, and so he acknowledges that the understanding of this, you know, has been gradual, but you still have to understand it. Uh, you know, I think about uh, like an idiocracy, they didn't understand plants. So they're trying to water them with energy drinks and they can't get anything to grow. Uh, and so Hayek is saying, you have to understand the conditions necessary for growth in order to be a, a, a person who is go a good farmer. Uh, does a farmer put work into growing the plant? Yeah, but it, it's, 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 a, it's a mixture of they put some work in, but then their they're, hands are off of it. And it's more about maintaining the, the ecosystem and the conditions of growth than them forcing the growth. They're not like they're pulling on the plant and, you know, getting it to grow. It's just, I'm going to put some work in, but those work, that work is mostly around the maintenance of conditions than it is around, you know, anything with the plant itself. Um, and what he's saying is there are people who are here who have this wrong, that they're ignoring the conditions and they're trying to focus on the plant and, and, make, and make the plant bend to their will. And you can't do that. You can't do that. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a reason why a lot of the the progressives that he re, he's referred to, even a lot of the pushback he got in America, f were from academics. It's people blinded by their own. It might be great ambition to to help the country and help the the poor and help everyone who's disenfranchised, but they're like you said, they're not looking at the ingredients that went into the flourishing we already have today. They're not even looking at what how they got their own position in academia with their their privilege to be allowed to just sit there and do, you know, play, play mind games instead of being out in the fields and working uh, for their own food. So it's kind of this um, to go back to, it's not always the, a, a malevolent, a malicious person who's in there trying to destroy people's lives. It's often people who are like, I think I have a better idea as to how to create uh, more progress, much more efficiently and effectively. Um, and they don't look at, you know, the recipe that led us to this point. And, and that's extremely unfortunate. And, um, you know, that that's when the bad actors will come in after some of those ideas are implemented. Yep. And, and he, he says next uh, to, to those bad actors and, and how they even come in. Um, progress uh, was taken more and more for granted and was no longer recognized as a result of the policy of freedom. It might even be said that the very success of liberalism became the cause of its decline. Because of this success already achieved, man became increasingly unwilling to tolerate the evil still with him, which now appeared both unbearable and unnecessary. And to your point, they, because of that, um, their intolerance for the, you know, the black spots on society, as he said, you know, which is good to acknowledge them, then people were willing to use any means necessary to address the social problems. And that includes, you know, be, you know, being, oh, well, not includes, but it, it creates the possibility for them to be exploited by bad actors who are like, I'll fix it. Just give me the power. I'll fix it. We don't need those old rules. We don't need those old, you know, mechanisms. You know, what's freedom anyway? Um, and we'll get into how we change or they, the definition Or of they simplify it and say they distill all of the bad things happening into one group. You know, yep. the Jews yep. are doing it. This is why we yeah, are yeah. them, right? So it's yep. a common theme, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's, this is where, I, what, the reason I like this quote a lot is because they talk about the, the evils that are still within man. And a lot of socialism, especially as it moves into the future, is this belief that we are not bound in any way to the human condition, right? We can alleviate ourselves of all the negative aspects of our condition. And we're kind of these blank slates that are able to, to uh, you know, 
buy into a narrative uh, full stop without needing to worry about any of our own personal growth or our own ideas. And this is why, you know, this is how Marx got it so wrong. He just, he yep. did not understand the human condition at all. And that is why we talk so often about incentives is because incentives and disincentives are the best way to get people to do what's best for society, as opposed to coercion, which are just going to normally make people upset, or it's going to target one group in the favor of another group. And that's where you end up in a totalitarian state. Um, and I, I like how he exemplifies the evils within man uh, that people see when they're, and, and this is also too, when um, it comes to, uh, you know, uh, climate change, right? Yep. The the countries that are most effective in fighting against climate change are the rich countries. It's not because they they feel or, or they're forced to to do things that are better for the environment. It's because they have the time to do it, right? Yep. They're so prosperous. They have to worry so little about where they're going to get their next meal from. They have all this extra time to say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to buy a, a, a Tesla instead of driving a huge truck. I'm going to do all these different things to, to make the climate better. And it's that prosperity that allows them to do that. And by reversing this prosperity trend, uh, you're going to get, you're going to try to force people to do things that they're not going to want to do. And at some point um, in, in that coercion uh, uh, calculus there, uh, you know, the threat of the government gun is going to come in at some point. And that's where you get exactly. that totalitarian state. Yeah. And as I think one of the things he says later, maybe one of the quotes you have, but as things are more and more collectivized, the opportunities for an individual to do something different shrink and coercion becomes more and more of a necessary force in, in the, well, enforcement of those, of that, those collective decisions, um, which are of course not really collective. It's, it's top down um, from a small group, but uh, so, so he goes on and this is, this is the part or, or all of this is good, but this kind of gets to, the crux of something that I've talked about before that I, I think is worth mentioning again. Um, they said he continues uh, because of the growing impatience of the slow advance of liberal society. Um, and those who just to pause might go, go back to the first video. There's a quote that he mentions, I think in the 73 um, version where he goes back to this again, this, the same thing he had noticed, maybe it was 76. 76. Um, yeah. yeah. And he, he, again, brings this up because he was seeing it happen in the U.S. where people were impatient for gradual progress. And so they're implementing all these shortcuts. Um, and, and so, but again, as you said, at what cost? Uh, because of the growing impatience with the slow advance of liberal policy and the just irritation with those who use liberal phraseology in the defense of antisocial privileges and the boundless ambition seemingly justified by the material improvements already achieved, it came to pass toward the turn of the century, the belief in the basic tenets of liberalism, again, think freedom and liberty, was more and more relinquished. What had been achieved came to be regarded as a secure and imperishable possession acquired once for all. So to contrast with the garden thing, he's saying people just thought you, you have it and it's there for good, not something that requires care and attend, attendant uh, and maintenance uh, to it. Um, the eyes of the people became fixed on the new demands, the rapid satisfaction of which seemed to be barred by adherence to the old principles, old principles being freedom and liberty. It became more and more widely accepted that further advance could be expected, not along the old lines of freedom and liberty within the general framework that had made past progress possible, but only by a complete remodeling of society. It was no longer a question of adding to or improving the existing machinery, but of completely scrapping and replacing it. 
dismantling, you might say. Mm. And as the hope of the new generation came to be centered on something completely new, interest in and understanding of the functioning of the existing society rapidly declined. And with the decline of the understanding of the way in which the free system worked, our awareness of what depended on its existence also decreased. You know, and real fast, people, um, and I mentioned this before we recorded, but um, people might be familiar with, I've, I've talked about this before, but one of these like stream of consciousness things I had one time was I wrote all these post-it notes out um, while my wife stood by the door patiently. And I came up with this thing I called the, the theory of expanding aesthetic that the next video is funny before I had already decided this is going to be my next video was talking about what's at stake here right now. And it's, it's this right here. And the theory of expanding aesthetic is basically is that from the first most granular person in society, all the way up to an entire civilization for everything, every single thing that, that we depend on. The first question we ask is what does it need? And then the second question is what do I want it to look like? And that begins on practical terms. So a person, you know, the first native American forms a pot and it it's, what does it need? It needs to hold water. It has to be a, a it has to function. And then once it holds water, then I can ask, well, maybe I want to put some designs on the side and same with your house. You have to know what it needs. So you start, you don't start with wallpaper. You start with walls. You start with the roof. You start with a foundation. Like it has to work. Then you can, then you can fiddle with the, with the decorations and you expand out from a house to a neighborhood, to a village, you know, to a city or to a, to a country. And the point is you always start with what does it need? to function? What does it need to work? And then once it has what it needs, you can make aesthetic changes to it. And those changes can go from physical to existential, to philosophical, to what I want society to look like in terms of a quality of opportunity and those kinds of things. So, okay, uh, black people don't have the right to vote. Don't, they're slaves or whatever. That needs to change. So I want it to look differently. I want society to actually live up to the constitution and treat all men as equals before God. And so that's the point. But, but today we see people who are so far removed of what does it need that they only engage with what I want it to look like. And they are fiddling with stuff without knowing that they're, they're moving from the realm of aesthetic into the physical, into the, the needs of it. You know, I, I, the example I thought of earlier was like Jenga, you know, it's like, if you don't know anything about physics, it's like, they're taking the blocks out of the bottom of the tower thinking that those, you know, though, those are pretty, I'll put those on top and they're real. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. Um, and so, and they're, and they have no idea they're going to bring the whole thing tumbling down again, to use the house metaphor, they're not taking out the wallpaper. They're taking out load bearing walls because they don't know they're load bearing. And so that's what Hayek is saying here is that people have become so preoccupied with these other things that they're and their own personal goals of what they want society to look like or be like or feel like for them, even if those are laudable goals, that they do not understand what the mechanisms are that brought them to this place of the most material wealth. Again, this is even in the 40s, but if you compare 1940 England to 1840 England or good Lord, 1640 England, I mean, it's not even close. It's not even close. And so he's saying there is a thing that got us here and people have become so detached from what got us here. They're just wanting to do these other things uh, and they're taking out the load bearing walls. And I think that's, uh, I mean, a serious, serious, serious threat here 
today uh, that people uh, th that is a problem of progress. I mean, that's that's Bain, right? Uh, victory has defeated you. Um, I, I think Jeremy Bentham brought it up in the video that we did. You know, and it's totally right. It's like you know, this is this is def defeat by your own victory. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job of explaining how, uh, you know, not understanding how it got here is really doing you a disservice when you are here. But also, I think it's, you know, perfectly summed up in the one sentence from the quote, uh, it was no longer a question of adding to or improving the existing machinery, but completely scrapping and replacing it. It is like uh, a rich kid inherit inheriting a $1.2 million Bugatti that has a broken headlight and scrapping it. Yeah. Like, like understand what it was to have a model t and then go to a bugatti i mean like well it's got a defect so I, you know i'm gonna toss it i can't drive it at night you know there's all these things rather than trying to fix that one little thing uh, i'm gonna scrap the whole system i mean it is truly you know uh, and try to build a better car from the parts yeah, oh for sure or yeah, yeah. Or, or start from scrap and or, and yeah. look at a bird and be like you know what i can build a i'm gonna model it after a bird and you know let's scrap yeah. this you know sports car 1.2 million dollar sports car and, and say you know i can start with better rather than building on you know it's it's okay to say like all right this is a really nice car but i think i could even make it faster and start making small tweaks to it as you go along right that's that ambition part you should be ambitious to make the system better you should be ambitious to really uh you know take out the ills of society it's it's a it's a great goal to do that but when it means you got to take away liberty in order to do that in order to coerce people to buy into your narrative how your your idea of how to make the system better um you are going off the road quite literally right because it was yep. the absence of that it was the absence of that coercion that led you here right so it's 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 the idea that if one little thing goes wrong it's time to scrap the whole system and that mm -hmm. is an, an awful idea and that that is how uh you get a lot of people hurt at best and it's an idea born of ignorance, right? Because it has no, it doesn't have the awareness. And I think this is where we see the value of real education in this country is that if you don't have an awareness of the past, if you don't have an awareness of, I mean, a true awareness of the past, not some 1619 awareness of the past, um, then you, it's going to be easy to just compare today to, to today and not today to 30 years ago or 100 years ago or 150 years ago or to other places at the same time. Let's compare the U.S. in 1960 to the Soviet Union in 1960 or to Ukraine, dear God, you know, and so, or to China in the 1960s and 70s. Like, we, like if you don't have that, then you're going to think that you can just fiddle with it. You know, as I've heard Jordan Peterson say before, it's like the odds of you being able to completely restructure society and actually improve it are, are virtually zero. The odds of you making it worse, including like into a living hell, are almost a certainty. And I, I think it was maybe in a conversation he had with Sam Harris where they gave the example of, um, I wanna say it was like a scaffolding versus a foundation. He's like, there's these people who think that these principles um, of society are like the scat, like when you're building a building, it's like the scaffolding around the outside of the building that once the building is complete, you can just take it and it doesn't impact the building. In fact, it might make it better because now people can actually see it and those other things where really this is, these are not scaffolding type things. These are not, you know, um, you know, little minor details. This is the foundation of the building. Um, and, and you can't do that. But if you don't have an awareness of what the process of building that was like, then you very well might mistake one for the other. And again, remove that block out of the bottom of the Jenga tower and, you know, in some, I would say just incredibly prideful and naive 
presumptive uh, assumption that you're actually going to be able to improve it, um, which is, I, I just think, insane. You know, it, it's, it's so reckless. Uh, it's so reckless. Um, so, so do you want to you bring us to the end of chapter one here um, to a close? You had some quotes yeah. here um, that you had talked about. Oh, here, really yeah. fast before that, I want, I want to include one more quote. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just saw it. Um, yeah. He he kind of closes that section that I just mentioned, where he talks about the kind of this intellectual snobbery towards the past, and he's, he talks about how these intellectuals would discredit the results of the past study of society, which did not conform to their prejudice, prejudices, and impose ideals of organization on a fear to which they are not appropriate. Um, and so, you know, his, his we see this again today, where people are applying their standards to the past and to the people who built the society we're in, and saying, well. They, they, they don't conform to my personal prejudices. And so, you know, to hell with all of them and to hell with all their ideas, I can, I can do a better job. Um, and we see that today. And again, to Hayek's point, it's like people would, people will say, and we'll come back to this, that, well, the United States and England in 2021 is much more advanced and much more prosperous than it was in 1940 or 1930 or 1950 or whatever. Um, and to Hayek's point one it's gradual and two there are ways in which we can markedly and i know we'll get into this later you know in videos that the gradual process of moving from individuals and to collectivism has advanced rapidly um in that time and so we are much closer to an authoritarian totalitarian kind of state now in these in these places despite all of our technological advancement than we were i think in 1940 or 1950 or 1960